0: Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Rachel Reyes, CMS's Director of Communications. The Khmer Rouge,
1: led by Marxist leader Pol Pot, came to power in Cambodia in 1975. For four years, the regime emptied cities and forced virtually all of Cambodia's population into labor camps, where people were starved, overworked, tortured, and executed. It is estimated that nearly two million people died. In this two-part series, Rachel Reyes speaks with author, chef, and manufacturer of Cambodian foods, Chani Chi Laux. In her memoir, Short Hair Detention, Chani chronicles the suffering her and her family endured under the Khmer Rouge. Only 13 years old when the communists took over, Chani was torn away from her family and forced to work in remote labor camps. She and her family were eventually resettled in Lincoln, Nebraska. Despite not knowing a word of English when she arrived to the United States at the age of 17, Chani quickly flourished, graduating high school, obtaining undergraduate degrees from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and earning a Master of Science in Applied Mathematics from Santa Clara University. She worked in Silicon Valley as an engineer in the aerospace and biotech industries for 30 years before starting her own business, Anchor, Cambodian Food, and publishing her memoir. In this first episode of a two-part series, Rachel Reyes and Chani Chi lauks discuss Chani's memoir and surviving under the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Now here's her interview
0: with Chani Chi lauks Hi Chani, thank you so much for joining us today. In 2017, you released your book, Short Hair Detention, which describes your and your family's journey from Cambodia to the United States. Your story is a harrowing account of violence under the Khmer Rouge, the agony of family separation, and survival. Fortunately, you and some of your family members were able to escape and emerge strong and successful after such a heartbreaking past. Why did you write the book?
2: So I felt really good, like, so living the American dream, every time my mom talking about things that happened during the genocide, I would always tell her, you know, mom, you should be proud or think about that time. It's so sad. You came to this country, you have four children that she raised as a single mom, and she was a janitor basically when she got here. I couldn't get her to move forward. What I realized is that all my success, besides all the things that people helped me to uh, adapt to new country, was the fact that she was there with me. If she wasn't available To be in this country with me, I think it would be hard for me to be able to achieve all those. When she passed away, I find it really hard to not thinking about what happened in the past. So she was the one that kind of protecting us from venturing into the past. And so I thought, well, I heard that people said if you talk about it, you know, you're you're seeing a counselor or writing a book about it, it will help you get better and feel better. So I thought, well, maybe I complete my book that I started many years ago, My Way of Healing.
0: Could you share a bit about your time in Cambodia during the genocide?
2: When it started, the killing, I was, just started my seventh grade and being 13 years old. We used to live in two-story brick home in just like in the city, just like any city in the world. And the very next day, They, um, the Khmer Rouge, evacuated us from our home and basically moving us to remote countryside, to places that we never even heard of, to the environment that we only read in a book. Everything was completely different. It was there that we experienced uh, starvation. This is only like a month after they took over the country. And when I say starvation," our ration from the government basically reduced to one tablespoon of rice per person per day. It was the experience that you never forget. You thought that with that little of food, you would die soon, but you didn't. It's just the human body. It felt like your body consumed itself to make to to live, to survive, and as a surviving that condition. All you t- could think about was, please let me die. Because this not, is not something to live. This is just torture. And I, I remember the Khmer Rouge have gone too far and they're not going to be succeed because the world is not going to watch somebody did this to their own people. Starving, execution, threatening. The whole country turned into basically a jail. So when they're starving us and they kill, you know, I see all the dy- dying around me, I thought for sure that somebody out there are going to stop this. But there's nothing happen, you know. The starving keep going on for days and week into months. The feeling of starvation, you'll never forget. Physically, you feel like the cram. You know, your internal stomach just twist and turn and grinding and just a ball of pain inside you. There's nothing you can do about it. I honestly felt like that is something that I can explain. But something that, to me, more painful is to witness my family suffer through this, as they may have, you know, witnessed how I suffer. Those are the things that you'll never forget. When I tell you about the pain, the cram, it's almost like a story. But when I tell you how I see my little brother, he was nine years old, and he never pleaded for extra. He's never cried. He just endured quietly. And after the ration, he would get to the corner of the hut and just sit there quietly, look into the distance. That's the pain that when I share with you, it still bothered me. Can you tell me about the labor camps? After the starvation, a couple weeks later, they um, basically moving all the children from their parents to different labor camps and some of the labor camp was um, that I was in the condition was I felt like the way they treat us was worse than animal at one point we were in deep into the jungle every morning this is during the monsoon season they would blow a whistle getting everybody up before the Sun come up and we would like zombie walking into the rain coal and then step into the deep water and walk through that deep water. Sometimes the water would come to our chest and just kind of walk through. And finally, we would get to the work site. And the work site is really small. When I say work site, it's just a patch within the jungle that's thin enough that we can clear to make land for planting. But really, it's not planting that they want. To me, it was labor. It was you have to do this, planting or not. It was, because it wasn't efficient. We just there it took us like three or four hours to get there and working two or three hours without anything to eat and then walk back for for another a good chunk of the day and when we got back to our camp it was dark and they would feed us with rice broth with salted broth planted in the middle all in my There's all the girls sit around that, and the broth was planted in the mud. And when we squat down to have our meal, the muds come above our ankle, always wet clothes. then we would go walk through the cow manure, the mud, and the muck, and walk into our sleeping rack. I said our sleeping rack because... They didn't build a place for us in that jungle. They built a place for the cattle. And above the cattle, they built, you know, under the um, grass roof, they built a rack. That's where we go to sleep. So every night we sleep above the cattle. And sometimes when the rain comes and the wind blow sideways, everything we had, we are sleeping in the rain. And I remember many times during that time I all I could think about was if I could see my mother one, one more time I could die in peace. And I remember that um, if I could just be strong enough and review the little ration they gave me the suffering will be shortened you know, will be gone. But then, you know, I thought of how my mom would feel if she lost a child i actually imagine her agony just hard for me to to see that so you know believe it or not we all we all have a choice at that time to live or to die and i choose to live and pray that um that i live just a little longer so i can Die in the comfort of my mom's arm, and she would have closure. But you know, we we um, we survive, <laughs> so that's how we get here today. There's so many other things that, so many other things that made me felt bad about what happened. Um, Guilt that I had for things that I sh- wish I did it differently because it affect people's life. But then other time it was about kindness. And when I talk about kindness, it's not like I'm starving, people give me food. But it's like I'm starving and people reach out to me and said, how old are you? You know, because I was, I was the youngest girl in the labor camp, one of the youngest girls. And I keep losing weight so much that everywhere I walk, and people thought, you know, it's like they think that I won't live very long. And that, by that reaction, I was frightened. And when I was frightened that I won't live very long, it's always thinking about, will I see my mom again, you know? And when I talk about the kindness, is when people said, how old are you? Because I would just, they couldn't imagine such a young girl, so skinny, walking around like a skeleton. I would, you know, I would answer them and almost like taking advantage of the fact that they think I'm going to die, so they're going to give me all of it, <laughs> whatever they can have to keep me going. But then when they said, where, where are your parents? Because at that time, I moved from camp to camp. When they said that, I would cry, I would sob, because I didn't think I could see my parent again. And those are the kind of kindness that made me cry. I never cry over hard labor or even starving. The only time I remember crying is when somebody reached out. They were like an angel to me. So it's an experience that I felt like the deepest you go into something so terrible, you can also experience the most caring and loving that you may never experience otherwise. It's like the yin and yang, right? That's just some of the things that, you know, that happened.
0: Thanks, Jenny. Can you tell me the significance of the title of your book, Short Hair Detention?
2: What does it mean? When I finished the book, I was going to name the book, like, love, because a lot of, a lot of uh, things that I put in the book was a love between a daughter and a mom, which is between me and my mom, the expression, the feeling that I had for her, how much she helped me to survive the things, and how much I, we live for each other, you know, her strength, all the things that she encouraged us. But then I thought short hair detention was something that I want to communicate to young adult, especially young girl. I want to communicate to a young girl that, about preteen to say how significant it is when you have your freedom, when you have your choice. What's the meaning of freedom and what's not is um, the fact that even the length of your hair is being controlled by the government. It's like that's how, how much you don't have a choice. And for me, it was significant, you know, after the first starvation that we go through and the very first labor camp that I went to, they told us that all girls have to cut their hair. And being gone through sickness and starving and just being separate from my parents, I thought that it shouldn't matter how they want my hair cut. It doesn't hurt me. But I felt... That hope that I had someday that I might see my parent again was all vanished. It was like, what else are they going to do? Because I felt like they've done everything to destroy me. But then again, now they're doing something to humiliate, to say, you have no control of your body, even the length of your hair. You can't decide what to do with it. And that made me feel like I have no hope, no hope of being myself, of being individual, but the other thing uh, significant about, you know, naming the book that way is because when they lined up all my friends in the road to get their hair cut, I'm not talking about, you know, a hair salon. This is like a tree stump in the middle of nowhere with cast iron scissor. <laughs> they told me that I didn't have to go in there because my hair was already short. You know, that instant I remember, even when I was writing the book, that I I have a little bit of hope and even smile because at that instant I felt like, they can't control us 100%. The situation doesn't let them humiliate me by make me sit there and cut my hair. The other thing about it is the picture that I had in front on the book, it was taken two months before the Khmer Rouge took over. And in that picture, my hair was already short. And I lived through four years under the Khmer Rouge regime. My hair never grew, not even an inch. It was that malnutrition, starvation. And not just to me, but the whole country was like a jail. Everybody, you know, if you ever go to on the Internet and search for a Khmer Rouge victim and look at all the girls and all the women in there, they all have their hair short, not by choice. So that's how I choose the name of the book to, to be Short Hair Detention. Now,
0: you go into further detail in your book about being separated from your family, your mother especially. At the core of your story is your relationship with your mother, Cheng Li, who you call M. Family separation is receiving a lot of attention right now here in the United States, where at the border, the government has been forcibly taking children away from their parents. You've already spoken a bit about what it was like, but can you tell me more about that experience and your thoughts on family separation?
2: As a child, everything happened. you think it's going to be permanent. Maybe at the time, to the parents, they may think it's temporary. But to the child, it's permanent. So to me, I think it's... uh, When I heard about the separation at the border, my first thought was like, whoever made that procedure decide this is what we're going to do. If there's one mom in there, I think that probably have a hard time to approve that procedure. Because as a mom, as a parent, it has to be a better way than separating their children from their parents, especially when they are new in a new environment. Because it doesn't do them any good, or our society any good, to not welcome them. I'm thinking, you know, especially when that happened to me, I was a young adult, was 13 years old, my goal now is to make sure that those young adult immigrant and refugee that came to this country, they may not go back to their country. This is going to be their country in their future. As a person who experienced all the hard things, I wanted to make sure that they feel welcome. And now things that might happen to them, we can't control. But what we can do is to make those people feel welcome. And by that, I hope that some of the things that I had been successful in this country will motivate them. That just because they come to the new country, they don't have to give up what they dream for. You can tell that my English is still not good, I'm sure. <laughs> it's but it's okay, <laughs> you know, right? It's okay, you don't have to be perfect and everything to try your best so you can reach your goal. And that was one of my dreams, by continue talking beside, you know, doing my food business to give you know everywhere I go to opening up that opportunity to share with um, with everybody.
0: For more information on Chani Chi Laux visit her at chani her memoir short hair detention is available for purchase on amazon CMS on airs theme music is provided by Danny Deberstein and the music case Special thanks to Amy Chen for help with the production of this episode. To get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.